Hey friends, just quickly, my new book, The Proof is in the Plants, is now available. Get it from plantproof.com forward slash book. Thanks so much for all your ongoing support, and I hope you enjoy this episode. If you love the taste of meat or love the taste of fish, don't eat it as a health food. Eat it like a treat. When you drink a glass of wine, you shouldn't be thinking this is good for my heart. You need 16 bottles of red wine to give you the resveratrol to produce the health benefits. Is your aim with PCOS short term? Do you not want to have longer term resolution of your androgen excess? Do you not want to have longer term resolution of your excess body weight? Do you not want to have longer term resolution of reducing your risk of womb cancer, which is a very real risk for people? people with missed periods in PCOS. Look at the long-term data. What are the single group of foods that reduce inflammation? A whole food plant-based diet. That's gynecologist Dr. Neetu Bejekul. And this is the Plant Proof Podcast. Friends, welcome back. It's great to be here with you. I hope you're having a lovely week. If you're joining us for the first time, welcome. I'm glad that we are finally connected. I'm Simon Hill, your show host, nutritionist, physiotherapist, and author. This show is dedicated to making science-based lifestyle decisions. In a world of misinformation and disinformation, My goal is simply to bring you agenda-free, nuanced information to help you optimize your health so you can feel better today and better for longer. I'm also a huge believer in considering the effect that our lifestyle choices have on the world around us, another theme that we'll explore together. Today, I sit down with Dr. Neetu Bajekal, who is a gynecologist from the UK, with over 35 years experience. Regular listeners may recall episode 155 where Dr. Pajekal and I took a deep dive into endometriosis. In today's episode, we explore polycystic ovarian syndrome or PCOS. We cover the ins and outs of what PCOS is, how diagnosis is made, underdiagnosis, signs and symptoms, the role of insulin resistance in PCOS, androgen excess, and of course, the various evidence-based treatment options that people can explore depending on their unique circumstances, all of which is extensively covered in Dr. Bajekal's new book, Living PCOS Free, which she co-wrote with her daughter and nutritionist Rohini Bajekal. I love this episode. I honestly learned so, so much. My hope is that you do too. And If you have PCOS, you walk away from this conversation feeling more informed and empowered than ever. With that, let's jump into things. I bring you Dr. Neetu Bajekal. Please do enjoy and I'll catch you on the other side. Me too. Welcome back. It's a pleasure to be here with you again. Thank you, Simon. Really excited to be here because we couldn't finish our conversation last time. 
And there's so much to talk about in reproductive and women's health. So I'm really grateful. We sat down, it must have been about six months ago now for episode 155, which was focused on endometriosis, but we had planned on covering PCOS as well, but there's just so much uh, information. I highly recommend that folks go back and listen to that one if they haven't already. It was a very informative and I must say very, very popular episode. You've, you've quickly <laughs> become a, a crowd favorite over here. So it is definitely nice to be able to have you back on to talk all things PCOS and get people excited for your new book, Living PCOS Free, which you're holding up now. It's incredible. I need to say from the outset here, it's beautifully presented. It's so accessible. And I just know that it's going to be such a valuable resource for people with PCOS. But as I was reading it, I was thinking even friends and family of people with PCOS and health professionals. So uh, you and Rohini, I, I hope that you're very proud and and I know you must be very excited for the launch. We are, Simon. You know, um, first of all, the book is not just for people with PCOS and those who have somebody who they know with PCOS. It's actually a book that will help anybody, whether they have endometriosis or fibroids or heart disease, uh, however you may choose to identify whatever gender you are. So I know that I've dealt uh, with Rohini very much into PCOS. It's a very complex topic and I would go so far to say most health professionals, including myself in the early years, didn't really understand uh, the condition. Um, and so I think we've done a disservice to people living with PCOS. So I'm hoping that by really trying to get rid of the medical jargon and really using case studies, myth busters, so much of misinformation out there that all I want to do is actually get to the people who have the condition. And, and that's why I'm just so grateful that, you know, you're having me back on the podcast because I, I do admire and love your podcast, probably one of my top five, probably the top. <laughs> well, thank you. Yes. And I think that you have achieved what you set out to do. I, I said before, this, this book is so accessible and you mentioned Mythbusters there, and there are a number of those Mythbusters throughout the book, plenty I'm sure that we will cover today. I thought that the best way to kind of tackle this, again, it's a very big topic, is to maybe split this conversation up into two sections. So we can start with the the what, the sort of ins and outs of of what PCOS is as a condition, and then the how, the the various levers that people can pull, these levers that are supported by evidence to, as your book says, regain their hormonal health and feel better in their day-to-day, -day, which is what this is all about. So that's a lot to cover. Let's jump straight into it. I want the backstory here. I know that PCOS is close to home for you and your family why is this conversation so important as a community, but also why is it important for you and your family? It is. And thank you for asking that question, because, you know, I've been wanting to write a book, but I've been so busy with my career, you know, as a teacher, as a doctor, that I felt I was better off going and doing workshops and speaking directly to the public rather than writing a book that might sit on a shelf 
And I started writing a general book uh, when I realized, and Rohini actually explained to me, she said, mom, you have helped me so much. You've helped so many of your patients. You have all this special expertise for the last 35 years. If you then write a generalized book, you're going to be writing two pages on each topic, which doesn't really help somebody with the problem. Uh, Rohini herself had PCOS, took a long time to acknowledge that she had uh, the condition my husband's side has a very, very strong history of insulin resistance and type 2 diabetes. And so we will talk about uh, how type 2 diabetes is a cousin, uh, actually a better off cousin than PCOS in many ways. Uh, but PCOS or polycystic ovary syndrome, as we say it, um, is not talked about enough. And I should see my patients being often shamed or blamed by um, the mothers and fathers who have, who brought them to see me because they didn't understand the condition. And then the doctors themselves or the health professionals would often dismiss their problems until such time that you wanted to try for a baby. Uh, and, you know, PCOS is so much more than fertility. It, you know, fertility is important, but it's not the only thing. So, yes, it was because of my own daughter, my older daughter, having the condition. She herself is a nutritionist and actually has got control of her condition. And she just felt that we needed to share all this that we see every single day with our patients, that we felt it needed a bigger audience, you know, because three quarters of people with PCOS actually remain undiagnosed and struggle not knowing that they have the condition, either because they don't know where to look for help or they see different health professionals. So we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, but there's so much to cover. And that's what we've done in the book is that we've actually divided it into uh, portions because I don't expect everybody to read every chapter. Uh, there are three science heavy chapters. I've really tried to take out and make, uh, make it really easily explainable because you do need to understand what insulin resistance is. You do need to understand what androgen excess is. And if you don't understand that, that might make you then reach out for misinformation <laughs> because you you think somebody is speaking the truth because they speak it with authority, although they don't have the authority to speak it with. Just in reading your book over the last couple of weeks, I can safely say I've learned more about PCOS than I have in years. And you're so right there. there. There is a level of information that you have to give people and then you can arm them with, with this information that can help these tools that can help them, you know, navigate the misinformation that people will inevitably come across. So it is, it is very empowering in that sense. Maybe frame, sort of contextualize PCOS for us here. How, how common is PCOS and, and who within our community does it tend to affect? So I'm going to start off actually, Simon, by explaining what it is, because not every one of your listeners, even if they have the condition, will actually understand or know what it means. It's an, a terminology that's bandied around, but what is it? So polycystic ovary syndrome, as this is actually medically known, or polycystic ovarian syndrome, so PCOS uh, or PCOD, which is polycystic ovarian disease, it's not a disease because disease has a known cause. So tuberculosis is caused by a, a, a mycobacterium, so it's a disease. A syndrome is a constellation of symptoms and has 
many theories to it. So that's important to understand. People say, I have PCOD. My doctor told me I don't have PCOS. No, it's the one and the same. PCOS, PCOD, PC, uh, polycystic ovary syndrome, polycystic ovarian syndrome. It's a condition that people often think it's a disease of the ovaries or it's a syndrome of the ovaries. No, it's a, the most common, the most common endocrine condition or hormonal condition to affect people of re- women of reproductive age and those assigned female at birth. So anybody who has female reproductive organs is the most common commoner than type 2 diabetes, the most common endocrine condition to affect people of uh, reproductive age. Reproductive age basically is, say, from the time you start your period, so around the age of 13, until you stop your periods around the age of 51. And it's a condition that affects the function of the ovaries rather than a disease or doesn't damage the ovaries in, in many ways. So the most common endocrine condition that affects the function of the ovaries and has a very wide range of psychological, reproductive and metabolic factors, you know, or issues. So that's why it makes it so complex. It's very, very complex because somebody with PCOS may go to see a dermatologist because they have acne. They may go to see an endocrinologist because they have prediabetes or they may go to see an obstetrician because they have gestational diabetes. They might come to see a gynecologist because they're missing their periods. So it's got very wide range of symptoms and it's a condition that is so common. So we say one in 10 people uh, are affected by PCOS. That means that for every 10 people, there's one person with PCOS. But actually, we think the incidence is higher in certain groups. And we think it, so the recent Apple study, it looked at about, ooh, between 30 and 37,000 women. It's just, it's still ongoing. It started in November 2019. And they look at all the, um, so it's the Apple Women's Health Study, if you want to look at it, it's just coming out. It shows that there's a 12% uh, incidence of PCOS that, you know, when they interview uh, women. But again, it depends on where you're looking for it. 75% of people with PCOS never get diagnosed. And the incidence is higher, for example, in certain subgroups, those who have excess weight, those who are trying for a pregnancy, so infertility, um, those who are from certain ethnic groups, you know, Mexican-Americans, South Asians, Indians. So all these things are important and the range can be from 2% or 3%, depending on how hard the doctor looks for it uh, or the researcher looks for it, to 26%. So one in four, one in four people suffer the condition uh, or live with the condition and don't know it. Why? Because they're often stigmatized. You don't want to go and see anybody or talk to people that you've got excess hair growth on your face or your back or in between your breasts, or you don't want to, you know, you go to the doctor and the doctor says, but you're not trying for a baby. Come back to me when you want a baby. That's really demeaning and makes the person shrink away and not talk about it. It's not cool. That's why you don't have many celebrities talking about the fact that they have PCOS because it's been stigmatized for a very long time with use of words like um, male hormone and fat or uh, sloppy, all these sort of words. And that's why we talk in the book about being mindful about how you communicate, whether you are somebody who knows somebody with PCOS or whether you're a health professional, choosing the right words, asking somebody, Simon, how would you like me to address you? How would you like me to address your issue? Because some people don't have a problem with, you know, certain words and also explaining 
things like obesity or overweight, if used in the correct medical term, it's fine. But it's not nice to label somebody as a diabetic or as an obese person because that's not only who they are. They don't just have PCOS. They're more than PCOS or more than infertility. So most common endocrine condition that affects one in 10 people living with PCOS uh, in the reproductive age group, range can be between 2% to 26%, so one in four people, and it has psychological effects, metabolic effects, and reproductive effects. So we'll talk a little bit about the symptoms, but I don't know if you have a question before that for me. No, I think that's a great reminder not to, to define people by their health or health conditions that they may be experiencing. I think that's a, a sound reminder for, for all of us. Before we get into diagnosis, because you sort of alluded to it there uh, around people not getting diagnosed or misdiagnosed. And I know that there is a set criteria that you outline in your book, and I really want to go over that. I think that's important. Before we get there, I would love to better understand the clinical presentation, the symptoms, how someone that is living with PCOS, how do they feel? What are they going through? So we'll talk about the Rotterdam criteria uh, and the international guidelines that came out of Australia from the Monash University, which is the set of guidelines that almost everybody follows. Uh, and it's important to understand what are the constellation of symptoms uh, or signs that lead to us saying, yes, somebody has PCOS. But before that, um, the symptoms can range. So we talked about metabolic. Metabolic could be things like insulin resistance, type 2 diabetes, metabolic syndrome. These are conditions that are basically situations where the insulin sensitivity is, is altered in PCOS. So those are the metabolic symptoms. Acanthosis nigricans. I don't know if you've heard about that. Those That is thick, velvety darkening of skin that you may notice on the back of your neck or on your knuckles and things like that. And that is a condition that is often sort of suggesting to somebody that, you know, go get yourself checked out. You, you may well have type 2 diabetes, pre-diabetes or PCOS. What was that called again? Acanthosis nigricans or nigricans, N-I-G-R-I-C-A-N-S. So it's a change in the way the skin feels. It's a thickened, velvety appearance of the skin. And you may see it on the back of your neck, on your eyelids, on your knuckles and things like that. And that might indicate to somebody, you know what, this is a sign of insulin resistance. Is that something that, that comes overnight in a very acute manner or is that something that is gradual? It, you may notice it over time. You may notice it over time. And people often wonder what it is. And if you aren't clued on to that, this is actually a sign that you should get go and get tested for diabetes. Um, you may just think, oh, my skin is getting hyperpigmented and I don't know why. Uh, so it's it's important to understand that this is an endocrine condition with PC, in PCOS. So you have metabolic uh, symptoms and endocrine condition, basically, if I have to explain that, Simon, I think it's important because people often use words like hormones and endocrine. And I, we've explained that, but basically uh, the endocrine system is a collection of organs and tissues which secrete these chemical messengers called hormones that then uh, get secreted directly into the bloodstream and then go off to different organs to have their effects, metabolic effects, reproductive effects. So you'll have these hormones like FSH and LH, which are um, hormones produced by your brain, 
by the pituitary gland, but actually work on your ovaries. You have the thyroid stimulating hormone that works on the thyroid hormone in your thyroid gland or insulin that is produced by your pancreas. So the endocrine system is a group of you know, organs or tissues that secrete these chemical messengers, which are hormones, and they have different hormones for different functions. And so when there is, I hate the word imbalance because I think it doesn't sound right, but that's the best way of explaining that the hormones may be out of kilter in certain situations, whether it's your thyroid, whether it's in PCOS, whether it's in diabetes. So you have symptoms of the metabolic nature, so insulin resistance, where you may notice that you're putting on weight uh, around your uh, waist, not everybody. Um, you may have symptoms of uh, thickening of the skin and frank diabetes or pre-diabetes. Then you can have reproductive health symptoms, delayed periods, missed periods. So irregular periods is often the hallmark, is one of the things that often drives women uh, to um, the doctor saying, I'm missing my periods. Although many people think it's still okay to miss a few periods, you know, and you'll have doctors saying to my patients sometimes that, oh, you're so lucky you don't have periods or their friends telling them they don't have periods. That's not healthy. So when you're not on hormonal medication, not having your periods unless you're pregnant or menopausal or you're on a hormonal medication, it's not normal to not have periods. So irregular or missed periods is the most common symptom of PCOS. You can also have infertility. So under reproductive health will come irregular periods, heavy periods, missed periods, infertility or subfertility. Then you have psychological symptoms and people don't talk about this, Simon, you know, anxiety, depression and anxiety and depression is not just linked to having excess hair growth or acne. That does make you shrink away because you have body image issues. You don't want to socialize. And then when you don't socialize, we know the benefits of a positive social network. So if you then stay at home and have these ruminating thoughts constantly, you know, I am not good looking. I am ugly. Everybody is slimmer than me. Everybody's got better skin than me. That becomes a vicious cycle. So anxiety, depression affects as much as 50% of those uh, living with PCOS. It's really important. Um, there's a higher incidence of suicide. There's higher incidence of obsessive compulsive disorder. There's a higher incidence of, you know, uh, bipolar um, uh, thoughts uh, or disorders, as well as, you know, children of people with PCOS having a higher incidence of ADHD and things. So, you know, anxiety, depression, um, having binge eating disorders. So binge eating disorders is where you you eat a lot, but you don't actually purge. You don't vomit. That is very common. Something like as high as 40% of people with PCOS will have binge eating disorders. But what happens is you go to see somebody like me, you go to see a doctor or a health professional. I'm living in a bigger body. So nobody talks about binge eating disorders because all you're telling the patient is go lose weight. <laughs> you know, that is the wrong thing to tell anybody. You wouldn't tell somebody who's got anorexia or um, bulimia, go lose weight or go put on weight. You're going to talk to them about different health goals. So what happens is these people get dismissed because they're living in a larger body, but being told to lose weight. And that makes it very complex. Where, whatever diet it is, dieting does, is not something that's going to help somebody with binge eating disorder. Those with androgen excess, that means excess um, uh, hormones like testosterone, actually have higher incidence of binge eating disorders. So under the psychological ones, you have anxiety, 
depression, you have binge eating disorders, you also have things like, which are not necessarily psychological, but they are associated with sleep. So disordered sleep, sleep apnea, which means where you stop and start sleeping, snoring, and you don't always have to have excess weight to start snoring. These things will then affect your sleep. When you have disordered sleep, you then have upset cortisol levels, hormonal fluctuations, androgen levels go up, blood sugar levels go out of the window, and you are then in full-fledged insulin resistance and PCOS. You also, so you can see that it's not just irregular periods. It's not just acne or uh, hair loss or increased hair growth. It is also psychological symptoms. It is also metabolic symptoms. And the important thing to understand is that PCOS is not just a condition that affects women or those assigned female at birth. The big study from, I think, Oxford, uh, 175,000 men uh, in the UK were studied and they were studied because they had somebody in their family with PCOS and they found that men get PCOS too. So it shows that this is not a disease primarily of the ovaries. It is a disease of the endocrine system because they have male pattern baldness, they may have metabolic syndrome and type 2 diabetes. And that is such a breakthrough because PCOS has been around for, you know, thousands of years. Hippocrates talked about it and it probably brought in some um, benefits like child rearing advantages, better muscle strength. In fact, you would love this fact. Uh, I don't know if you read it in the book. Um, The most common disorder in Olympic sports women is PCOS. How cool is that? (laughs) You know, that is such a thing to be like amazing. There you go. Given that it's it's affecting uh, men as well, do you think that that potentially calls for a, a name change or the way that we're kind of thinking about this this syndrome? So PCOS is a misnomer. It's a misleading uh, thing because there are no cysts in your ovaries, okay? So somebody who is born uh, with female reproductive organs has two ovaries. Ovaries are the egg-containing follicles. And at the time of conception, around 20 weeks, you would have something like six, seven million eggs. You're already born with the number of eggs. You're not going to make new eggs, unlike men who actually have make new sperm every 72 days. So what happens with these eggs, six to seven million eggs at 20 weeks of uh, gestation when you're inside your mom's tummy, by the time you're born, you have about half a million or a million eggs. And then every month, whether you're on the pill, whatever happens from the time you start puberty, so from the time you have secondary sexual characteristics and your period start until you stop menopause, every month, probably 10,000 eggs get destroyed. They just naturally die away, even if you're on the pill or whatever. And only one of these eggs gets into the menstrual cycle, gets selected for ovulation. So what happens in PCOS is you actually have all these uh, pool of immature follicles, immature eggs that never, they all start at the start line, but you know one is supposed to get the first prize, but all are trying to run and none of them get selected. So as a result, you have lots of these little immature egg follicles that on the scan appear like a pearl necklace. You know, I don't know if you can see on video, I'm wearing a a stone necklace. So it appears like that, like a ring of pearls or a rosary appearance. But it's not always common. And you may see that even in teenagers who don't have the condition. So polycystic suggests that you have cysts in your ovaries. There are no cysts in the ovaries. Cyst is a a fluid-filled follicle. These are just immature egg follicles. So the name, you're right, should... So was suggested metabolic reproductive syndrome. But then it was 
So the Monash University and the, all the experts said, you know what is going to cause a lot of confusion? Is it PCOS? Is it PCOD? Are there different types of PCOS? Let's not get into all this. Let's keep the name as it is rather than confusing the situation because this uh, information about men is actually very new. We've suspected it, but this um, study is just 2021-2022. So it's important to understand that that might change in five years, it might change in 10 years, but men listening to this conversation need to understand that if they have somebody with PCOS, they are also at a higher risk because of the genetic, it's a Genetics plays a very important role in PCOS. There's a lot of uh, genetic tweaks that have happened uh, that make people respond differently to insulin in type 2 diabetes, in insulin resistance, and in PCOS. And we see that. So genetics is, of course, not your destiny, as we talk about throughout in the book. Like George Bray said, you know, genetics loads the gun, lifestyle pulls the trigger. But genetics does play a very important role in PCOS. Is that what explains, because there seems to be a lot of overlap between type 2 diabetes and PCOS here, right? And I'm thinking about the risk factors and what are uh, genetic and perhaps modifiable. But does that, what you just said there about genetics, does that potentially explain why not all women with type 2 diabetes develop PCOS? Yes. So we've explained that it's the most common endocrine condition affecting 1 in 10 people who are assigned female at birth or women. We understand that it has a number of psychological symptoms, metabolic symptoms, and reproductive health symptoms. But how do you diagnose it? Why would I tell somebody that they have PCOS? For that, they have to fulfill, if they're an adult above the age of 18, they have to fulfill two out of the three criteria that are have been set by the International Expert Consensus Group. They met in Rotterdam, and then the 2018 international guidelines that came out of Monash have confirmed that that's the what we are sticking to. What are the three criteria? The first one revolves around an ovulation or oligoovulation. What does that mean? Medical term, don't get phased by it. All it means is that you're not releasing an egg every month or most months. An ovulation, not releasing an egg. So what does that do to you? You will either have missed periods, so a period coming every six weeks, eight weeks, 10 weeks, 12 weeks, or you may have amenorrhea, which is basically not having a period at all for months and months and months. So anybody listening, if you're not, if you're having this sort of cycle, normal cycle length is between 24 to 35 days. If one month you're having 24 days, next month you're having 35 days, then you're having a 45 day cycle or missing your periods for three months, you do need need to seek medical advice. So oligoovulation or anovulation. So ovulating infrequently or not ovulating at all, which is the commonest cause for the infertility in PCOS. And that can be fixed. So that's criteria number one of this Rotterdam criteria. And you have to meet you have to meet two out of the three. Is that right? Correct. Correct. So if you're an adult, we'll come to an adolescent, but if you're an adult, you need to meet so the first one is oligoovulation or anovulation, delayed or missed periods. The second one is signs or biochemical evidence of androgen excess. What does androgen excess mean? Androgens are a group of steroid hormones that are produced by our body. You can also have artificial ones. As, as you know, people take androgens uh, to um, build muscle. But uh, so they're steroid hormones that basically play a big role in, for example, in men, in secondary sexual characteristics and in women for bone strength, muscle strength and other mood and things like that. Testosterone is the most 
common uh, best known of all all androgens so the second criteria is signs of excess of androgen or testosterone what is that that could be acne not acne on your forehead that teenagers get but acne on your jawline on your chest uh, they can be nodular they can be cystic they are often painful so anybody who has acne above the age of 25 or if you're younger but you have this jawline distribution or on your back you know you've heard about words like acne and you know on the chest uh, patients will say i don't have much on my face but i have a lot of acne on my back so acne is one of the signs of androgen excess uh, excess hair growth on your face in the same jawline again on your chin on your upper lip in between your breasts there are nine sites called the galloway cl- uh, classification you don't need to know that but it's a hair on your back hair between your breasts hair below your belly button hair above your belly button uh, hair on your buttocks or on your thighs so you know one can you don't need to remove hair before you go to your doctor i mean you can remove the hair it doesn't matter you don't have to grow it out you just need to be able to explain to your doctor these are what i have noticed so acne and excess hair growth and scalp hair loss so these are the three signs of androgen excess so you will not have frontal balding always now the other thing i forgot to mention very important simon is that pcos polycystic ovary syndrome is a diagnosis of exclusion that means you've got to make sure that you don't have the other conditions what are the most serious conditions something like non classic congenital adrenal hyperplasia cushing syndrome ovarian tumors that secrete androgens adrenal gland which are these little kid, um, little triangular glands sitting on top of your kidneys uh adrenal tumors these are dangerous and need to be sorted so if you have a rapid growth of hair rapid so within few months you've noticed suddenly that you're starting to have lots of excess um, facial and body hair if you notice suddenly lots of acne or a change in voice or uh, frontal balding you need to see your doctor pretty quickly because you need to have scans and be sorted out so that you been and blood tests and things is this something that uh, a regular physician will be across there's obviously a lot of things to consider there i'm just wondering is this something that a general practitioner should be across and should be able to help someone with or do they need to see a specialist yeah it's very rare but family doctor as soon as somebody says i've suddenly noticed this change then the doctor should ask these questions have you noticed change in voice have you noticed uh, that you uh, you know losing hair or you know these more detailed con- uh, questions and not waste time straight away to the specialist rare condition but need to be sorted so congenital adrenal hyperplasia is often diagnosed as a child but it may present later in life and the last thing that one needs to exclude is hypothalamic amenorrhea so you get a lot of people who are exercising over exercising and so they miss their periods and they may think they have pcos but actually they have got maybe a eating disorder or exercising too much or some other non functional hypothalamic amenorrhea so pcos is a diagnosis of exclusion the first criteria is anovulation or oligoovulation where you're not releasing an egg manifested with irregular or missed periods or delayed periods or no periods the second is signs of androgen excess cystic acne or acne on your jaw excess facial and body hair and hair loss or you may not have those symptoms and rarely this is rare but sometimes you will have blood tests that show high levels of uh, testosterone and uh, free androgen index is raised but actually you don't have the signs of acne uh, excess hair growth that's not common 80% of people will have with pcos have some form of androgen excess even though their blood results are often normal because they have 
what is called local androgen sensitivity. So we also have not everybody with excess weight. You have two out of 10 people with PCOS who are actually in a lean body, what is known as lean PCOS. They may have excess intra-abdominal fat, um, which you may pick up because of diets that they have uh, taken up or because they have insulin resistance as well. So you have the second uh, criteria, science or biochemical evidence of androgen excess to go along with the oligoovulation. And the last one, which people often think it has to be present, is polycystic appearance or increased volume of ovaries on scan. There are set criteria of the number of follicles that you need to have. If you have a very good quality machine, 20 follicles or more, or the certain ovarian volume will suggest that you have PCOS appearance, PCOS polycystic ovarian morphology on scan, but you don't need to have that. So you could have missed periods and acne, and that's enough to diagnose PCOS. You don't have to have a scan. The reason we often do a scan is for research purposes, if you need to sort of put into phenotypes, you'll see a lot on social media. What kind of phenotype PCOS are you? I know it doesn't matter. As far as you're concerned, PCOS is PCOS. That's for research purposes very clearly. But also you may have um, a premature um, ovarian insufficiency or early menopause or premature menopause. So that's why you need blood, certain blood tests. You need scans to pick up ovarian cysts and ovarian tumors. So scan is not always a pelvic ultrasound scan is not a must but two out of the three criteria is a must to diagnose an adult with PCOS. Now for an adolescent, that means a teenager with PCOS, first of all, you would ideally need to wait for eight years before you firmly diagnose somebody with PCOS if the criteria are a bit vague, but you need both, number one and number two. So a teenager who comes to me and has an ultrasound appearance of uh, little follicles in their cysts does not actually, does not qualify for PCOS because Teenagers will also have a multifollicular or multicystic appearance. Quite normally, young people will have that. So for a teenager to be diagnosed with PCOS, she has to have either missed periods or irregular periods after the first year or a period that's missing for more than three months, along with either acne or excess facial hair growth or you know, uh, blood test evidence of increased androgen. So the first two criteria are a must if you have adolescent PCOS and two out of the three criteria, that means the ultrasound scan appearance comes in to be diagnosed as an adult. So two out of three for adult, two out of two for a teenage pregnancy. Does that sort of explain? Very clear. Okay. <laughs> what if someone has polycystic ovaries? as determined by ultrasound, let's say, but doesn't meet those first two criteria. I know that that can happen. I believe it can. I might be wrong, but I've, I've spoken to people who have said that that was the position they found themselves in. What's going on here? And are these people a certain subset that are perhaps at higher risk of developing PCOS later, or is it completely unrelated? No. So there may be somebody, if you dig deeper, and that's where you know, the beauty about being a doctor is you're a detective, okay? So you ask these questions and then you find out how much do you exercise? Do you have an eating disorder that you haven't talked about? Because all these things make the ovaries go to sleep, you know? So it is possible that you see the signs uh, on a, a ovarian scan. You may repeat it. You don't need to have both ovaries showing those changes. So if you just have an ovary that is showing polycystic ovarian morphology, um, 
that is not enough to diagnose it. But often it's because somebody hasn't hunted enough, hasn't done enough detective work. They don't know what sex hormone binding globulin is. They don't know they have to check free androgen index. They may not have asked about the correct questions about acne. They are thinking she's not trying for a pregnancy. I don't need to worry that she's got PCOS or let me. So there is, there was a recent paper in the PM, BMJ where I think again from Australia, where they said that, you know, we are overdiagnosing PCOS. My response to that is no, don't go down that road. We are underdiagnosing PCOS. The incidence, the prevalence of PCOS has been steadily increasing. Huge meta-analysis in 2021 that has shown that the incidence of PCOS is steadily increasing because of a number of lifestyle stresses, sedentary life, stress, sleep disturbance, all kinds of things that have actually made things worse, our diet choices. So while, yes, sometimes we might be too quick just based on an ultrasound to tell somebody they've got PCOS, that's wrong because you have to look for all the three criteria and see whether they fulfill the two. We don't, we're really underdiagnosing PCOS. And 8 billion, Simon, 8 billion is the healthcare costs of PCOS per year in the US. 8 billion. Why? From pregnancy related costs, pregnancy complications, and from complications as a result of insulin resistance and type 2 diabetes. So, in response to your question, if you just have PCOS, truly just have a polycystic ovary, without signs of androgen excess, without biochemical evidence of androgen excess, as is evidenced by testosterone levels, free androgen index, which actually looks at how much of active testosterone is circulating in your body, or you don't have delayed or irregular periods. A lot of women think having periods every five weeks, six weeks, eight weeks, when they're not on hormonal medication is normal. It's not. And so it's actually explaining to the health professionals, this is what you have to look out for. So don't underdiagnose these people and wait for them to then try starting for a pregnancy and then be told that they have a condition that they should have been doing lifestyle changes. Really, from the time their mother, they were in their mother's uterus. Really, it's an epigenetic uh, issue as well. You know, the lifestyle and stresses that women go through when you're carrying a baby has a profound effect on your genes, the way the genes are read. And that is both good and bad because epigenetics is, you know, the effect that we have with environment and pollution or the environment of your baby inside your tummy working on the way the genes react. But also the good news is that means we can actually alter it. And that is important to understand that, you know, this is a condition that has got a lot of lifestyle uh, factors associated with it. So we should be making it, uh, making changes. So the criteria are oligoovulation, excess of androgen, uh, either on blood test or on signs and ultrasound scan. Two out of three for adults, two out of the two not ultrasound for adolescents. That is the criteria to diagnose PCOS. Do you have a sense as to whether the symptoms and the prognosis differs depending on if someone meets all three of those Rotterdam criteria versus someone that perhaps just meets two of them uh, versus someone that meets two but a different two? Does the prognosis look different? No. It doesn't. We're still doing research and that's what the research is. But as of now, uh, whether you have all three or two, it really doesn't change how you 
set out to manage and empower people living with PCOS. So that is the important thing to understand. We don't know enough yet. We, you know, there have been studies and research and things, but there's still so much needed in uh, reproductive health that I, you know, we can talk about that uh, all day. But what is important to understand is what causes the condition. If you don't understand, so we've done the criteria, we understand that there are all these symptoms, but what is actually, what is causing it? So you have the most important driver in probably three quarters of people with PCOS is insulin resistance. Okay. And then you have, you may not have uh, insulin resistance and you may have insulin resistance even when you are not carrying excess weight. So we know that when you have excess weight, that can increase your risk of insulin resistance. And even if you don't have that, even if you are in that lean PCOS group, you could have insulin resistance. What if you don't have insulin resistance? Can you develop PCOS? Yes, you may. If you are somebody who has put on excess weight from a sedentary life or eating um, the wrong foods, that can also give you PCOS. And that actually can be managed pretty quickly if once you explain that to the person. And then you have genetics. So genetics is probably you need those insulin receptors that have been tweaked in your genetics to make you more susceptible to insulin res uh, resistance. And also we know studies have shown that you do not produce enough insulin if you have PCOS in many, many people with PCOS. So what causes PCOS? If you just remember this for your listeners, the main driver is insulin resistance, but excess weight is also implicated. Both these will affect the genes that you've inherited from your parents, which then get influenced by the lifestyle that you're leading. So the sooner you realize that, the earlier you bring in the changes, the better the outcome for the condition. Can you cure PCOS? No, you can't cure PCOS. Can you cure type 2 diabetes? No, you can't. But what you can do is you can reverse insulin resistance, you can manage your symptoms, and that is what our book says, you know, living PCOS free. It is not something that you're going to be rid of it, but you're going to actually be empowered to understand your symptoms and manage your symptoms. So causing of P cause of PCOS is insulin resistance. Then you'll ask me, hey, but what causes insulin resistance? So <laughs> it's like going down this rabbit hole. You've read my mind. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but before we get there, I actually want to, to go even more basic than that question. Okay. I want to, in case someone because often we, we use terms, like you said earlier, and we presume that everyone knows them. And of course, I, I really appreciated the way that you explained insulin and insulin resistance in the book. You did a great job of, again, making that very accessible. So you're talking here about insulin resistance being a really a main central driver of PCOS. But let's take that step back. What is insulin? What is insulin resistance? And then we can get to perhaps what is contributing to insulin resistance. So I'm going to explain to you what is insulin, what is insulin resistance, and why insulin is so important in PCOS. So those are the three things I'm going to talk about now. The first thing is what is insulin? Remember the hormone I talked about, the endocrine system? So the pancreas, which is the stale-shaped organ that is sitting in our tummy uh, high up near the liver is called the pancreas and it secretes insulin. That's the job um, that it does in response to the food that we eat that gets broken down into glucose. And the job of the insulin is to shift this sugar or glucose once it's been broken down into our cells, into our muscle cells, into the liver, about 
50 to 70%, I think, of the insulin is used to shift the sugar into your um, muscles, about 30% into your liver to become glycogen later, and then a little bit goes into your fat cells as well. So insulin is the hormone produced by your pancreas, which shifts the sugar from your bloodstream, from the banana that you've eaten, from the potato that you've eaten, from uh, the whole grains or beans that you've eaten into your bloodstream. So that is the job that insulin does. What happens is there are certain situations which where your tissues become less sensitive to insulin, which means that imagine that your cell is a room, okay? Imagine that a room that I'm sitting in has a door. Imagine that door has got a keyhole, okay? So you've got a key, which is the insulin, and you have the keyhole, which is the insulin receptor. Remember what I said about PCOS, those receptors get a bit wonky, so the insulin may not work as well, and the pancreas are also not producing as much insulin as they should in many people with PCOS. So what's the job of this insulin? This insulin key comes, puts the key into the lock, turns the key, the glucose goes into your cells, starts churning all the machinery in your cells, and boom, your glucose is cleared. What happens is this insulin receptor may not work very well. This lock may not work very well, or there may not be enough of the insulin initially. Whatever it is, because we know PCOS is increased risk in type 1 diabetes, in type 2 diabetes as well. So this insulin then is trying to open the lock. And you know, when you have, you have to use your WD-40 uh, because some child or somebody has stuck some chewing gum into it and you're trying this key and it's not opening. Why is that? That's because of a number of reasons. One is that the tissues themselves have become less sensitive to the action of insulin. And that is because of either excess uh, fat that you're carrying in your abdomen, either even if you're slim, you, you may be carrying it intra-abdominal, which is a more dangerous type of fat called the visceral fat, not necessarily the fat that you've seen on your tummy, but the fat inside. Just one question, because I know this is, we're moving very fast here. That point there about visceral fat, abdominal fat being more important or, or more potentially of an issue when it comes to insulin resistance for that reason, do you prefer waist circumference as a measurement over BMI? So BMI, sadly, is, it's all the studies have been done with body mass index, which is basically your weight divided by your height in meter square. And the normal body mass index, which is said for generally a Caucasian population, if you think about it, 18.5 to, I think, 24.5. But if you're Indian or Pakistani or Southeast, uh, South Asian, your BMI really should be below 23, uh, not 24.5. So that's important. BMI would be very different. You uh, Simon, who lifts weights and is really fit, um, may be somebody who actually uh, has a raised uh, high body mass index and may classify as somebody who's overweight or obese on the scale because your muscle weighs more than fat. And so body mass index is not very um, good for older people, for those who are assigned female at birth and women, those who are uh, athletes, uh, who are bodybuilders, uh, certain ethnic uh, minorities, uh, you know. So that's important to know that BMI, although it's used and it's a good guide, you know, it's easy to do. You can just go on your app and calculate your BMI. It's not the best. So waist measurement uh, is good, but it's very difficult in somebody who has excess weight. Where is your middle of the waist? 
you know? So again, that becomes difficult. Is it around your belly button? Is it around your hip? You know, so that can give you false things. The rough guide, if I remember, is that your waist circumference should be half your height. Okay, that is from what I remember. Remember, I'm a gynecologist first, so I don't remember all these things in detail. Uh, but that's your waist circumference, which is, yes, a good measure. Weight, uh, body calipers can be, a, you know, your, if you have a personal trainer, they may measure your uh, body fat with that. CT scans and MRI scans are probably the best to detect the internal fat, the visceral fat that can cause lipotoxicity. Lipotoxicity is where you have the destructive effect of uh, excess fat that causes inflammation and chronic inflammation is not good. Acute inflammation, when you cut your finger and you have all this inflammatory substance, to come and heal it, great. Chronic inflammation is what is a background of having excess weight, so being obese or being overweight or type 2 diabetes or any of these conditions. They're all chronic diseases tend to be a state of chronic inflammation because they set off these pathways. So insulin is the hormone. Insulin resistance is where the insulin is not able to do its job because the tissues have become resistant because the lock, the insulin receptor is sometimes either defective or it is because it is clogged with excess fat. Where does that fat come from? It could be your visceral fat or it could be from dietary fat. So when you're having a high fat diet, so for example, an animal fat diet full of saturated fat, it goes and sucks onto these receptors and blocks them like chewing gum. And so we know that losing 5% of body weight in people with PCOS, boom, suddenly your tissues become more sensitive. When you exercise the same thing, it suddenly unlocks these, um, uh, even though you may not lose necessarily weight, exercise helps by making your tissues more sensitive to insulin. So lipotoxicity, inflammation, uh, gut microbiome, all these play a big role in insulin resistance. So insulin resistance is when your tissues become less sensitive to the insulin. So what happens, Simon, is that your body then says, hang on, you've just eaten a banana, you've just had a, a potato, you've just had some pasta or some fruit, and I can't shift this glucose into the cells. So what does my brain tell me? It tells the pancreas, come on, produce some more insulin. So it produces more insulin. And, but the insulin can't push this glucose because it's blocked with this fat. So the insulin levels keep rising. And so you have high insulin levels, but the, in, the tissues are resistant to insulin. So that is why until you melt that fat, the dietary fat, you reduce that dietary fat, when you uh, reduce the body weight with, from the fat, of course, you can't do much about your genetic alterations in your receptor uh, or to the amount of insulin that your body can produce. But these are the causes of insulin res uh, resistance. The other one is endocrine disruptors. You would have heard about it. Let me say it now loud and clear. Soya is not an endocrine disruptor. For everybody listening, soya is good for PCOS, type 2 diabetes, for everybody, whatever your gender. But there are endocrine disruptors that can be found in fish, for example, or in cans. So you, that's why you should buy, if you're buying beans and things, you should buy bisphenol-free cans, BPA-free cans, because they have been known to affect androgen levels and insulin resistance. So endocrine disruptors, dietary fat, excess body fat, and genetics all play a role in causing this insulin resistance, which affects the insulin. The next question you will ask me is, but so what? So what if I have insulin resistance? Why is it causing PCOS? 
The reason it is, is because insulin is, has got other actions. What does it do? It basically stimulates insulin-like growth factors that are released by the liver and it mimics the action of insulin-like growth factors, IGF-1s, which basically affects the ovaries and makes them produce more androgens, affects the adrenal glands because the adrenal glands, which are these triangular shaped glands sitting on your kidneys and your ovaries are both the main sources of your androgens, which are the hormones that determine, you know, the sexual characteristics and bone strength. Testosterone is an androgen. So insulin increases the level of androgens by two mechanisms, directly by stimulating the insulin-like growth factors and also indirectly by suppressing the effect of a production of a protein by the liver called sex hormone binding globulin. So what happens is, first of all, it's increasing the testosterone levels and it is reducing the protein that binds this testosterone. So the, when the protein binds the testosterone, it has no action. It cannot increase hair growth and acne. But when you have high levels of testosterone and low levels of sex hormone binding globulin, boom, what you have is more biologically active free testosterone circulating in your body, creating mischief. So that is why, and so we know, for example, eating plants increases your sex hormone binding globulin. The contraceptive pill increases your sex hormone binding globulin. So those that's important to understand. If you want to do it naturally, if you want to do it through medication, what increases SHBG or sex hormone binding globulin is through reducing the amount of active testosterone. The other thing that is important to understand with SHBG is we, we basically uh, use SHBG and testosterone to come up with an index called free androgen index, how much of free testosterone is running around in your body. So insulin works directly on the insulin-like factors, uh, IGF-1s, and as well as on the SHBG. But excess weight also does the same thing. Insulin also makes you put on weight. PCOS is associated with excess weight in about 80% of people, but we don't know whether that's a true reflection. But the condition makes you put on weight and weight makes you put on PCOS. You know, the, the debate goes on. Hey friends, I hope you're enjoying this episode. It's Simon here. Just a quick intermission to remind you that my book, The Proof is in the Plants, is now available. In this book, I cover common myths about plant-based diets, evidence showing the potential health benefits that are up for grabs, the positive impact eating plant foods has on the planet, and much more. To order your copy, head to plantproof.com forward slash book. plantproof.com forward slash book. Okay, let's get back into it. I think a lot of people listening, and by the way, that was a fantastic explanation of how insulin resistance contributes or plays a pivotal role in PCOS. I, I didn't fully appreciate the overlap between insulin and uh, excess androgen. So I think that was a, a fantastic explanation, certainly very illuminating for me. But one thing that comes to mind immediately as you're talking about that, and this comes up with type 2 diabetes. It comes up anytime that insulin resistance actually comes up as a topic. And you mentioned uh, a banana and, you know, there is sort of two ways of, of kind of approaching insulin resistance when it comes to diets. You'll see one side that will 
look at that and, and see elevated insulin. And you've just told the story there about how elevated insulin is affecting androgens and immediately think, well, we should just reduce total carbohydrates in the diet because if we have less glucose that needs to get into these cells, then the body doesn't have to pump out as much insulin. And so you often see, and I, I think it's particularly my low carb sort of functional medicine friends, they're very low carb, animal based for those reasons. And, and anecdotally, you, you'll hear various people with PCOS adopting those diets. And it does seem like a low carb diet is at least with my reader of, of things on social media is fairly popular. And then on the other side, you have people that are, are, are more leaning into a plant-based approach and are talking about the, the quality of the carbohydrates being the issue. So I, I'd love for you to kind of comment on yeah. you know, how you see all of that. Yeah. The important thing to understand is who are you blaming here? Are you blaming the messenger? You're basically blaming the banana or the potato when the problem is with the receptor and with insulin, right? So the insulin is not able to do its job because the insulin receptor is not willing to open the lock and allow the glucose to come in. So what happens is when you have now carbohydrates, we can talk about carbohydrates in a minute, it's a macronutrient. Um, but what you have to understand about um, when you go on a low carbohydrate diet, what you're doing is you are, what are you eating? You're basically eating um, animal fat, animal protein in general. Yes, we can talk about the eco-Atkins and the low-carb, plant-based way of eating, but that's a very tiny minority. So the majority of people would have diets where they would have a couple of eggs with some uh, greens in the morning. They would have salmon uh, and maybe a few broccoli and, I don't know, some zucchini and some cucumber. And evening, they would have chicken breast. What is in those foods um, to increase the glucose? Nothing. So, hey, when you do it for three months, four months, because all studies tend to be very short-lived, yes? Uh, and so what happens is you're seeing, uh, you, you check somebody's blood sugar and it's low. Why is it low? Because you're not eating anything. You know, eggs don't have uh, any significant amount of carbohydrates. So what then happens is you get this false idea that your insulin levels are dropping and they do drop initially because you're not eating ultra processed foods that are, again, disrupting blood sugar. But so what then happens is you are eating these foods and guess what? Remember what I said about the insulin receptor, the lock? That chewing gum is getting stuck in there with, you know, the dietary fat that comes hand in hand with these uh, animal protein foods. So as a result, all you have to do is then just deviate and eat a donut or eat a banana and the insulin falls flat on his face because it can't do its job. The lock is completely blocked. So in a few months, there's no, so basically you're on this low carb diet, which most people will fall off. All diets, people fall off. Unless it's a way of life, they always will fall off it. And what happens is by the time your uh, influencer, your trainer, your, um, you know, anybody who's propagating these diets has gone away. But we know from the Lancet, we know from the Global Burden of Disease uh, study, which came out in the Lancet in 2019, every study has shown that all cause mortality is increased when you have high animal protein diets, high animal fat diets. So yes, your blood sugar will improve for three, four, five months. I guarantee you this. I know this from my husband himself, Rajiv, who's a back surgeon, uh, became diabetic and, you know, he did um, 
all these diets, his, and initially he would celebrate. And then he was absolutely shocked that his HbA1c and his fasting glucose, everything went sky high. And it was only after he changed his thinking, changed, understood the, the science behind it, that it made a difference. Every time you eat a high fat meal, every time you eat a high animal protein meal, you're bathing these cells in this situation where while there's no glucose, there is all the stuff that is causing insulin resistance. So we know that this will work short term unless somebody is completely committed to working on it long term. But the chances of suddenly dropping dead with a, a heart attack increases when you're eating this high saturated fat diet. And so, yes, if your aim is to lose weight at all costs and like, as Dr. Greger says, fit in a smaller coffin, that's a different matter. But if you want to live a long, healthy life, stay out of a hospice and not get dementia, dementia is the biggest killer for women in the UK, the biggest killer. Heart disease kills more women than men. Okay, so diabetes, type 2 diabetes on the increase. So Yes, low-carb diets will work in the short term, but PCOS is not a short-term game. It's a long-term haul. This is something that affects people even in menopause. So you can, and it's linked with heart disease. It increases our risk of endometrial cancer. It increases the risk of type 2 diabetes. Simon, uh, half the women under the age of 40 will become type 2 diabetic by the time they reach 40 with PCOS. If they have PCOS, half the women, whether they carry excess, carrying excess weight increases your risk. But even if you don't have excess weight, half the women will get type 2 diabetes by the age of 40. That is horrific statistics. Osteoarthritis, you know, changes in the nails, dental caries, all these things are important. So low-carb diet, great initially because it cuts out ultra-processed foods. Ultra-processed foods are deficient in fiber. All animal fat is deficient in fiber. And fiber is really important for women's health. Why? Because it traps the excess estrogen in your gut that normally would get circulated back through your liver called the enterohepatic circulation. So those on a plant-based diet excrete two to three times the amount of estrogen in their poop. So that's really important to understand. They also promote the growth of uh, certain bugs in the gut called the estrobolome. Just like the microbolome, you have the estrobolome. And so you want to understand that when you have high estrogen fueled conditions, PCOS has lots of excess estrogen from excess weight, uh, and that can trigger the hypothalamic pituitary axis. Also endometriosis, fibroids, ovarian cancer, endometrial cancer, or womb cancer, breast cancer. These are all estrogen-fueled uh, conditions, which is why often you have a myth about estrogen dominance. You understand there's a lot of words used estrogen dominance in the social media. There is no estrogen dominance. You don't treat it with progesterone. You actually reduce the amount of estrogen by lose, shedding any weight that you may have or changing the way your lifestyle is. Stress, exercise, um, sleep, and diet. Okay. I've got a lot to say on that. With, with regards to the low-carb diet, let's say that someone is listening and I know there will be people that exist like this that have adopted a low-carb diet. Let's say it's a, a paleo diet or something similar and uh, let's, let's say that they were one of the eight out of the ten where insulin resistance is driven by excess weight, which is what I heard. Correct me if I'm wrong, but yes. And that this low carb diet that they have adopted for whatever reasons you mentioned there, the removal of, of ultra processed foods, but has helped them lose a significant amount of weight. So they've seen improvements in their symptoms 
and and they have dropped a, a lot of weight. What is your message to that person? Okay, so that again depends on whether you're trying to do something short term or long term. The randomized trials that looked at high protein, low carb, uh, low protein, high carb showed no difference at all in the short term. But we know longer term, when you look at the 195 countries that were looked at, they looked at you know, I think 20 dietary factors. This is the global burden of disease study. And they found that irrespective of what you ate, if you cut out whole grains, if you cut out beans, if you cut out fruit and vegetables, then you are in trouble. Okay. So it's really important to understand that these are life givers. So yes, of course, the people who are listening, who have had improvements of shedding some weight will in the short term, find some improvement in their blood markers. Longer term, every single study, every single study has shown all-cause death, all-cause uh, sorting out type 2 diabetes does not work. And also, as I said, most people will put on, put back most of their weight, 80% of their weight back on in two years, um, or 50% of their weight back in two years, and in five years, 80% of their body weight. So if you're doing something for a short-term gain because you want to look good for a wedding, go for it. Okay, if you are doing it because you want to heal your uh, PCOS, you want to heal your heart disease, you want to heal your uh, breast cancer coming back. We know that the more plants you eat, nobody's asking you to go vegan. Nobody's asking you to go 100 percent plant based. But we know that the closer you inch and the word I'm using very carefully, inch towards a plant based diet, because if you suddenly jump in feet first because you've seen a documentary, Great for you. Good for you because, you know, you are then bringing ethics into it, which then makes you much more likely to commit. Right. But if you have you're doing this for health, then mark my words, the only way to do it is to do it over a period of three, four months. Why? So that your gut bacteria, your gut microbiome get used to it. Because if you look at people with PCOS, what they have is they have less of the healthy gut bacteria. They're less of the estrobolome. They have less of the firmicutes. But what they have more is um, bacteroides and E. coli, uh, the enteroinvasive E. coli, all these bugs that don't know how to digest fiber because animal foods have zero fiber. Understand? There is no fiber. At least something like the Beyond Burger has less fiber, but it has not zero fiber. Animal foods have zero fiber, whether it's fish, whether it's eggs, whether it's dairy. And we should talk about dairy when it comes to acne, but, you know, I don't know how much time we have. Um, but essentially, the more plants you can bring in. So I tell my patient, my patients say, oh, I don't eat fruit uh, because it's got so much of sugar. And I've been told that sugar is bad for you. Yes, free sugar is not good for you. The same way animal protein and animal fat is not good for you. And if you've tried the plant-based diet with the regular amount of uh, fats and things, that's great. But if it doesn't work for you, yes, you might want to try a low-carb plant-based diet for a short while. But it is not good to have a restrictive diet where you're cutting out the essentials, the beans and the whole grains and the fruits and vegetables, the herbs, the spices, the mushrooms, the nuts, the seeds, because they are the building blocks of health. We know that from the blue zones. So once people understand that when you don't 
eat this way, you, so my patients might say, I don't eat fruit. So I'd say, okay, are you prepared to eat one fruit a day? Yes. So maybe in a week's time, do you like bananas? Yes. So have a banana. Would you like a cup of berries? Add that to the your diet. Oh, I like berries. Do you like grapes? Do you like mangoes? So you basically start with where they are rather than suddenly ramming them with, oh, Japan and Canada says 13 portions of fruit and veg. My patients are going to run away, <laughs> you know? So they're going to not want to eat a big salad or a big bowl of soup and a few fruits. That's all you need because one portion is a handful. So you start where the person is. If your listeners are on a low-carb diet, I'd say gently introduce berries. After berries, maybe introduce an apple, then a pear, then some greens, and then some you know potatoes with skin and some sweet potatoes with the skin. Slowly introduce it. Make changes to the meals that you can. Start with breakfast, Try to eat in the circadian rhythm. That means do not do intermittent fasting as far as possible in PCOS because it causes increased levels of cortisol. And cortisol, uh, the way cortisol is is dealt with in PCOS is, is also impaired. So, you know, you have all these things. That's why high intensity exercise if you only do that kind of exercise, may not be the best type of exercise. We don't have enough research for exercise in PCOS, but you want to be doing lots of muscle strengthening exercises, weight resistance exercises. You want to mix it up with aerobic exercises so that you actually increase insulin sensitivity. So I hope I've convinced your low-carb fans to start understanding why insulin resistance really depends on the kind of foods you eat as well. I'm not sure that I have many low-carb uh, listeners, although I do invite them to, to come join us, that's for sure. I think I'm, I'm more just trying to play devil's advocate based on what I see uh, out there. And I think having heard everything that you just said then, let me, let me kind of summarize it and you tell me if, if I'm wrong and then I might ask a question off the back of this. But it seems like uh, in the short term, that for many people losing weight is important and a dietary pattern that's going to help you achieve that, something that you can adhere to and, and, and help you lose weight is going to be a good one. But what I'm hearing is that it, it seems like there hasn't been any real definitive studies done on PCOS that say this is the single best diet to alleviate PCOS symptoms. So what you're saying is that there could be a, a myriad of ways in the short term, but you're coming back to, well, what is going to be best for this person over the rest of their life that can also reduce their risk of all of these other chronic diseases that they'll be at risk of? Simon, I don't know if you're aware, the American College of Lifestyle Medicine came out very clearly with a position statement, I think in June 2020, where they said very clearly that the way forward to manage type 2 diabetes, and remember what I said, type 2 diabetes is a very close cousin, probably even a brother or a sister to PCOS, right? So we know what works. So we know what works for type 2 diabetes. We also know what works for long longevity. So for us to live long without dementia, cancers, breast cancer, one in seven of us will get a diagnosis of breast cancer, ovarian cancer, bowel cancer. So, so we know that, um, you know, there are certain things that one should be doing to try and live a healthy life. There's no point living longer like we are. So the average life expectancy is 83 years. But 
the last 20 years, you don't want to be getting diagnosis of cancers from the age of 40, 50 even, or ending up in, in a home not recognizing your loved ones, which is one of the worst things that can happen. So yes, the sadly, the international guidelines have not been able to say this is the diet. Lots of studies have been done, but nobody has actually been able to say this is the diet. So they say choose a diet that allows you to lose weight. Now, all the patients that sit on these groups, so you know that in any guideline group, we have patient uh, spokespeople as well. They come away from these guidelines completely confused. You're telling me, doctor, to follow a healthy lifestyle. I don't understand. Should I be listening to Simon Hill? Should I be listening to um, uh, Dr. Bajikal? Or should I be listening to some other influencer who's telling me to eat uh, red meat, uh, ribeye steak, and, and some broccoli? I am completely confused. What do you mean by a healthy lifestyle? Your idea of health may not be mine. So that leaves people with confusion. So what do we do? We resort back to science. And science says very clearly that if you are somebody cutting out complex carbohydrates, so the diet composition for anybody should be 50 to 55% carbohydrates for optimal health. If you are doing a low carb below 40%, whichever form, paleo, keto, whatever you're doing, if you're doing a low-carb diet or you are, say, from, say, the Indian subcontinent where you have a very high-carbohydrate diet that is not carbohydrates coming from sweet potatoes or from uh, fruits and vegetables and from beans and whole gra- intact whole grains. They come from cakes and biscuits and samosas and fried foods. These things are really important. And I, in a minute, I'm going to talk about advanced glycation end products because that's really important for PCOS. So if you are somebody who's confused, all I'm saying is look at the long-term data. It is fine to do something for short term, but is your aim with PCOS short term? Do you not want to have longer term resolution of your androgen excess? Do you not want to have longer term resolution of your excess body weight? Do you not want to have longer term resolution of reducing your risk of womb cancer, which is a very real risk for people with missed periods in PCOS? Do you not want to reduce your overall um, um, risk of dying early? We know that those things are increased on a low carb diet and on a very high carb diet. So there are very good studies available for that. So once we know that information, then it's your choice. You can decide, you know, if you love the taste of meat or love the taste of fish, don't eat it as a health food. All I'm saying is eat it like a treat, you know, when you drink a glass of wine, you shouldn't be thinking this is good for my heart. You need 16 bottles of red wine to give you the resveratrol to produce uh, the health benefits. In, with 16 bottles, I'll be lying in a ditch, okay, or dying of cirrhosis. So don't con yourself. When you enjoy that glass of wine, you enjoy it because you are sitting with friends and you're enjoying it. Do not tell yourself, you know, because we know that a bunch of red grapes is going to do a better job. So we know that alcohol increases cortisol, disrupts hormones, smoking does the same, advanced glycation end products does the same. So when you eat meat, when you have dairy, when you have eggs, you eat it. If some, So often people will say, oh, Mrs. Bajikal, are you telling me that uh, eggs are bad for me or fish is bad for me? No, there is no f- good or bad food. All you have to understand is that you eat a certain amount of food in a day. In that choices, when you make, every time you put a donut in your mouth, you're missing a chance of eating a bowl of mango, uh, you know, with blueberries on it and some dark chocolate drizzled on it. 
Okay, every time you have a, a coffee latte or whatever with full fat milk or skim milk, you are then missing the chance of actually having a bowl of porridge, um, you know, with uh, soya milk and flax seed and chia seeds, all the things that are bringing you the omegas that you need for PCOS. Every time you eat fish, you're missing the chance of eating a minestrone soup or eating lentil pasta with a red lentil bolognese. So it's not that anything is bad. It's better for you. Of course, fish is better for you than uh, than having um, you know a sausage definitely but is it better for you than tofu scramble no i'll argue till the uh, cows come home similarly every time you choose to have you know olive oil and you have weight to lose yes extra virgin olive oil is great for you it's got lots of health benefits but is it better for you than having your fats from whole foods no so learn to use your olive oil very cleverly because every time you heat oil to a high temperature you produce advanced glycation end products what are advanced glycation end products these are natural waste products that are produced by your body in small amounts, but mostly come from food. They are uh, sugars that bind to proteins and basically cause, they're called glycotoxins. What do they do? They cause uh, damage to your tissues, to your arteries, increase your risk of heart attack. But also advanced glycation end products have specific receptors on the ovaries and on the lining of the womb, which makes it so, so, so dangerous for PCOS people. Why? Because that those advanced glycation end product receptors just mop up these advanced glycation end products straight onto the ovaries and damage them in the long term. They damage the lining, making fertility and implantation a worse uh, situation. So advanced glycation end products come from cooking foods at very high temperature. So when you have a barbecue, I know in Australia, everybody loves their barbecue. And But fried potatoes still have less advanced glycation end products than boiled chicken. So animal foods tend to be the highest source. The moment you cook them uh, dry heat, high temperatures, it worsens the amount of advanced glycation end products. And we know that they also increase the risk of endometriosis, red meat, chicken, both are significantly associated with endometriosis, a condition that is sometimes seen along with PCOS as well. So when you understand that you want to reduce advanced glycation end products, you want to choose foods that reduce inflammation. What are the single group of foods that reduce inflammation? A whole food plant-based diet. So a diet that is rich in colorful fruit, colorful vegetables, not just broccoli and zucchini and cucumbers, but vegetables that co cover the entire range, nightshades, all of them. They all contain various antioxidants that mop up these free radicals, mop up these advanced glycation end products and sell them, uh, send them out of your body. So for example, a very good dinner would be mushrooms with brown rice. Amazing diet, low in inflammation, very high in all the right um, antioxidants that will reduce your levels of advanced glycation end products. Breakfast cereals increase your risk of advanced glycation end products. Animal foods increase your risk of advanced glycation end products. And we know that these uh, glycotoxins are dangerous or damaging to the ovaries and to your womb. So you want to really keep them at a minimum. So any of your health professionals who tells you to go on a low-carb, animal-based diet, sadly has not read the science. And I would strongly urge you to either refer them to my book or to my website if you don't want to buy the book, because we talk about this all the time. You have to follow the science. I don't mind if you eat meat or fish or eggs, you know, once in a blue moon as a, a treat, but bringing it in every single day into every meal you will just do yourself a real disservice and your um, 
you know, health professionals, your trainers, your influencers would have all gone off into the sunset, leaving you carrying the long-term complications of the condition. Sounds like it could be a good future conversation if I can convince someone to come back on the show with you that perhaps is is advocating for the, the low-carb style diet. I think that could be quite uh, informative. I'm interested. You mentioned soy. I want to talk about specific foods that within this kind of plant predominant, this diet where there's the foundations are from fruits and vegetables, whole grains, legumes, nuts, seeds, herbs, and spices, are there any superstars, any foods that have been specifically looked at that seem to be very beneficial for PCOS? And I'll add a second part to that because you mentioned inflammation and it just came up in my mind now what you think about the inclusion of fermented foods within this style of eating. When I mean a whole food plant-based diet, I mean that your diet or your plate should have lots of fruit, lots of vegetables, lots of beans, lentils, green peas, soya, mushrooms, herbs, spices, nuts, seeds, uh, and seeds like hemp seeds, sunflower seeds, chia seeds, flax seeds. Flax seeds need to be powdered. All these are very rich in omegas as well. Omega-3 has been found to be deficient in PCOS. And if you reach for the fish, they often come with organic pollutants and high levels of mercury and endocrine disruptors. Now, soya, the studies have been done on soya and PCOS. And what they found uh, in a lovely little randomized trial, and then again in another randomized trial, I think, um, was that when you ate soya, you not only had a slimmer waist, but you also reduced your uh, cardiovascular markers, uh, which are, uh, you know, raised triglycerides, raised um, cholesterol, and improved your all your inflammatory markers, things like interleukin-6 and uh, other cytokines and CRP. So we know that inflammation is a hallmark of all these chronic conditions. And when you eat a plant-based diet, including soya, now soya, the reason why there's been so much confusion is one has to understand what soya is. Soya is a bean. It's a legume. I liken it to um, the jack and the beanstalk and uh, the magic beans. It's very rich in protein uh, and it has all the essential amino acids um, sort of laid out in the same style as egg white. So for those of you who are eating egg white omelets, you're probably better off having soya in its um, minimally processed or whole form. So edamame beans, for example. So not only is it rich in, in protein and it has the uh, right sort of unsaturated or polyunsaturated fats and uh, MUFAs and things like that. It also has vitamins, but it also has something called plant estrogens or phytoestrogens. They're not unique to soya. Um, phytoestrogens or plant estrogens are present in all beans and fruits and things like that. Uh, but soya has a higher quantity. And the important thing to understand about the estrogen that is produced by uh, being uh, of excess weight from our body cells or from estrogen that comes from red meat and other animal meats uh, is that they basically affect both the alpha and the beta receptors of estrogen and cause mischief. When it comes to soya, it only works on the beta receptors predominantly. So as a result, what it does is it's very clever. On the breast, it suppresses uh, any cancer growth because it uh, stops the angiogenesis, but also it does not promote breast growth unless you're in puberty. When it goes to your bones, it promotes bone growth. And when it comes to your hot flushes, it reduces the amount of uh, active 
selective estrogen that is there. So it is what is known as a CERM, selective estrogen receptor modulator. So depending on which tissue it's acting, it behaves either as an agonist or an antagonist. Say you're an adult woman uh, and you're trying to reduce the risk of breast cancer, soya actually will stop the action if you've got too much of other estrogen floating around by blocking those receptors. So it is known as a selective estrogen receptor modulator, uh, which basically means that depending on whether it's acting on your bone or your breast or on the estrogen uh, receptors in different parts of your body, it will behave differently, sometimes with an agonist activity and sometimes with an antagonist activity. So blocking effect or growth promoting effect. And we know that children, men, uh, boys and girls who eat at least one portion of soya in, in their early childhood, the studies are coming out showing that they reduce their risk of prostate cancer and breast cancer. As you know, that those who eat dairy have a 26% chance of increasing the risk of prostate cancer uh, of cow's milk, while when you have soya regularly in your diet and most adults should have at least two portions but uh, you know i would say for people approaching menopause perimenopause athletes they should even go up to four portions that's what i do i have a cup of soya milk in the morning i have a cup of soy yogurt in the evening i always try to make sure that they're fortified but also i would have a handful of edamame beans which has been shown to reduce hot flushes by 84% by dr neil barnard um, but I would also recommend having tofu and tempeh and fermented uh, foods. So it's really good uh, to understand that soya is not an endocrine disruptor. Studies have shown that soya is beneficial. It does not affect fertility. It does not affect sperm quality. It, in fact, helps you to regulate your periods. It reduces your risk of breast cancer, bowel cancer, ovarian cancer. So Anybody who's in any doubt, please go onto my website and actually read the fact sheet on soya. I have no stakes in soya. Uh, I don't get any money from anybody, but it is something that I feel so passionate about because there's so much of misinformation, both in the plant-based world as well as in the no-bean-eating um, low carb world as well because of lectins and things like that. So soya is healthy. Soya is beneficial for reproductive health for all ages, for men, women, or however you choose to identify for children and adults. But eating a plant-based diet will reduce your inflammation by reducing your markers. We know that from studies have been done showing that your CRP and interleukin-6 and other inflammatory markers are reduced. When you reduce inflammation, you then start putting all the hormones back into the right place. And so it doesn't necessarily work for everybody, as in it's not 100%, but you will see a huge improvement. Some people will still need medications, whether it is for fertility and whether or whether it is for uh, regulating your hormones, regulating your periods. It's really important that the message I want to give very clearly is I'm not only about lifestyle. Lifestyle is super, super, super important, but it always has to dance uh, alongside where needed with conventional medicine. Hey friends, me again. Quick note to let you know, I have a brand new, completely complimentary two-week plant-based meal plan on my website. Inside contains delicious breakfast, lunch, dinner, and snack recipes, along with a complete breakdown of the nutritional information for each. Whether you're looking to add one plant-based meal to your weekly regime or go full plant, I'm sure you'll find this resource helpful. You can get your copy today at plantproof.com forward slash meal plan. That's plantproof.com forward slash meal plan. Okay, let's get back into it. 
I've got questions about medications, but I want to just make sure we don't move too quickly here. Estrogen. You, you mentioned before something that, that I found interesting was you were talking about the estrobilome and the benefit of fiber and the effect that that has on the microbiome and reducing the sort of reabsorption of estrogen being a good thing. But then you also, you said that estrogen dominance is a, a bit of a myth. So I'm just trying to, to sort of uh, reconcile this. Is, is too much estrogen a problem when we're considering PCOS? Yes. So there's something called unopposed estrogen. For that, we have to understand a little bit about the menstrual cycle, which I explain in the book. But the menstrual cycle, just imagine it starts with somebody having a period. Okay, so shedding the lining is the menstrual phase. Then what happens during this time, an egg gets selected because of hormones released by your brain. Uh, FSH, follicle stimulating hormone, stimulates a follicle. One of them gets selected. In PCOS, often there are many running to the front line, none of them reaching it, so they don't necessarily get selected. So what happens is this um, is not, then um, the follicular phase is the first, usually about 10 days to two weeks uh, and where the egg gets mature and then you have ovulation, which is around two weeks before your next period. Uh, so around day 14, if you have a 28 day cycle, for example, a hormone is released from your brain called luteinizing hormone that then triggers ovulation and then estrogen that has been produced in the first two weeks gets complemented by progesterone. So progesterone is a hormone that is needed for preparing the lining of the womb in readiness for pregnancy. In about two weeks, if the egg has the egg lives only for about 24 hours and the sperm lives for about three or four days. If uh, uh, embryo hasn't been formed and hasn't implanted, the body says, oh, this is there's no pregnancy this month and it sheds again as a period. So you have the menstrual phase, the follicular phase, the luteal phase, uh, and this is important to understand. So when you have an ovulation or no ovulation, you just have the estrogen levels climbing and climbing and climbing. So you don't have the progesterone to protect the lining of the uterus. So when you have unopposed estrogen, lot more estrogen in your body, uh, and you don't have the progesterone to protect it, what happens is you can develop missed periods, but also the lining thickens and you can have overgrowth of cells and then ultimately endometrial cancer, which is the commonest uh, cancer in women with PCOS under the age of 35. Uh, so it is important to understand that estrogen dominance, like with any myth, uh, Simon, you know, when they say low carb diet, they what they what really should be avoid refined carbohydrates. Yes. So similarly, when you say estrogen dominance, there's a grain of truth in it, but then it gets completely sidelined by people going for, you know, progesterone creams and progesterone supplements. No, sometimes you will need progesterone drugs that we use uh, or the con contraceptive pill, which has got estrogen and progesterone to protect the lining so that you have shedding at least every three months. Okay. Because if you're not on any hormonal medication and you're not menopausal or not prepubertal or pregnant, then you need to be having a period because otherwise, if you go for more than three, four months, you'll just have this buildup of estrogen thickened lining, which is not being shed. So we use progesterone as tablets to cause a shedding if somebody doesn't want to go on the contraceptive pill or cannot take the contraceptive pill in people with PCOS who are missing periods. 
So too much of estrogen is not good. Why? Because we know that when you have excess estrogen, it fuels conditions like endometriosis, where the lining of the womb, similar tissue, grows on the ovaries and on the back of the uterus. We know it fuels uh, growths, benign growths like fibroids. It increases our risk of breast cancer. So unopposed estrogen or excess estrogen is not a good thing. That does not mean that you just take random supplements to actually make it better. No, you've got to go to the root cause. You've got to reduce that level of estrogen. How do you do it? So if you're somebody who is having excess visceral fat or excess body fat, the body cells, the tissue cells are a storehouse of hormones. Now, Again, to understand where estrogen comes from, you have a building block called cholesterol. Everybody knows cholesterol is a steroid, but our body makes enough cholesterol by our liver. We don't need to eat any excess cholesterol. So what happens? Cholesterol is the building block. From that, through a complex pathway, you first have progesterone and various derivatives of progesterone. That then produces androgens, of which testosterone, dehydroandria, DHEAS, androstenedione, various androgens are produced. Testosterone is the most commonly known. And from androgens, estrogen is produced. That's why it really gets me upset when people say testosterone is a male hormone. No, testosterone, estrogen, progesterone is found in all genders, men, women, however you choose to identify. It just differs on the amount that you have and what your age is and what stage of life you have. So there is no estrogen without testosterone. So the building block goes cholesterol, gets into, becomes progesterone, becomes androgens, becomes estrogen. So when you have uh, this negative feedback, uh, you know, these things I've explained simply with diagrams in my book, but what I want people to understand is that there's a lot of negative and positive feedbacks that our brain tells our ovaries, the testes, the adrenal glands, and the body fat tissues. So when you have all this disrupted, what basically happens is you have high levels of estrogen, either because you're carrying excess weight or you have high levels of androgens because the body is not recognizing that you've got enough estrogen in your body. So when you have these imbalance of excess hormones, what then happens is you start developing more conditions like androgen excess you may have more acne, more uh, hair growth. So when you drop that weight, uh, the visceral fat as well, the estrogen levels drop. Similarly, when you choose a plant-based diet, what happens is a high fiber diet traps this excess estrogen that has to go through your gut and then gets reabsorbed into your liver, comes back into your gut. So called enterohepatic circulation. So what happens is when you have fiber munching bacteria, you know, all the good bacteria, they basically munch on this uh, fiber, they trap the excess estrogen, chuck it out of your system. So you as soon as those estrogen levels drop, you reduce your risk of breast cancer, your endometriosis risk, and see improvement in PCOS. So excess estrogen is not good, but you don't treat excess estrogen with progesterone supplements unless you're trying to shed the lining in specific situations. You reduce that excess estrogen by changing the way you eat, by changing the way you sleep and you stress because we know that when you uh, have stress or when you have disordered sleep, you basically affect not just the blood sugar fluctuations, but also hormonal fluctuations, cortisol levels and androgen levels. So you want to make sure that your sleep is in order, your stress levels are in order as far as possible, find ways of managing it, change the way you eat so that you're eating foods that will trap the excess estrogen and that will help you to shed any excess weight both internally or externally. And by doing that, you will 
reduce that estrogen that you don't want. So estrogen dominance has got a grain of truth in it, but it is not the real story. It's not the full story. Beautifully put. Thank you for explaining that. I want to talk about supplements and pharmaceutical interventions that perhaps we haven't covered yet and where they may have a a role in this kind of holistic approach that you're describing. Before we get there, yes or no with regards to fermented foods? Are you you a fan of those? I'm a great fan of fermented foods. And that is again important because the gut microbiome has been implicated significantly in how people manifest with conditions such as PCOS and endometriosis and breast cancer. There's just been, I think, a study that has looked at the cells being, uh, you excrete in your poop to uh, diagnose pancreatic cancer because they look at the bacteria that... uh, are there in those with pancreatic cancer to try and pick up. And and so we know that people who eat a plant-based diet uh, or a predominantly plant-based diet have a set of gut microbiomes that I think Alan Desmond has spoken a lot about, which behave very differently to the uh, gut bacteria that grow in the presence of animal food. So that's why fermented foods are so good because they are providing the substrate for the bacteria. So they are the prebiotics for um, the probiotics. The probiotics are the bacteria. The prebiotics are the foods that these bacteria want to munch on. And so you want to really uh, understand that when you bring in things like a bit of kimchi, a bit of sauerkraut, a bit of pickled uh, onions or gherkins, you know, these are really good. Uh, Some apple cider vinegar, these are things that can actually allow you to improve the gut microbiome and stop the gut uh, dysbiosis, as we say. So I'm a great fan of sprouting, also helps to digest uh, fermentation. So, you know, I'm from South India, Simon, and we have uh, dishes like dosas and idlis, which are all fermented foods. They're amazing. Mm, I love dosa. Yes, you know, and Rajiv makes a really mean dosa. He sprouts his mung dal. It's amazing, amazing. I want the recipe. Oh, yes. You know, he just is uh, like, since lockdown, I've, you know, never realized. Now I know he's a great cook. I don't enter the kitchen anymore. And I always thought I was a great cook until I, I saw how good he is. We have a lot of recipes in our books, actually. We have about 40 recipes and, and lots of uh, how to implement everything that I'm talking about. So fermented foods gets a big, big, big thumbs up from me. Sprouting gets a big thumbs up from me. I've always grown up all my life, uh, you know, having eaten sprouts. Uh, in And I don't mean Brussels sprouts only. I love them. But uh, I mean sprouting any sort of bean that you can get your hands on, kidney beans, uh, soya beans, mung beans, you know, you can sprout anything. And I think you've had podcasts with somebody who's, who is very much into sprouting, isn't it, Doug Evans? And I would say people should listen to those podcasts just so that they can actually, if they don't know how to sprout, uh, that's something they should uh, understand. Just a word of caution with sprouting, if you're trying, if you're pregnant, is just make sure that you actually understand how to sprout so that you don't uh, either poison yourself or uh, your children, uh, if you've got small children, because you've not taken proper care and, you know, you've got bacterial contamination or fungal contamination. Yeah, Doug Evans is he's certainly my go-to source and, and definitely one of the, the world-leading sources when it comes to sprouts. And it's so easy. Sprouting is literally the easiest thing. Yeah, so there's a, a lot of fun to be had there. What about supplements? I know last time we spoke about ginger and that had some utility, but I'm wondering when, when we're talking more specifically about PCOS 
and the symptoms that someone with PCOS may be experiencing. Are there any supplements that that either you've seen clinically have worked really nicely or have been supported by science? So we always talk science uh, rather than N uh, equals one. Uh, so it, I have a whole chapter on supplements in my book. Uh, I am always a food first person. So always first look at the foods that you can bring in because just popping a supplement probably will leave you um, not getting the desired results. Uh, but there are some supplements that I would recommend everybody looks into. Uh, one of them is vitamin D. It has been no uh, vitamin D is a hormone. Uh, so do make sure that you get checked out uh, for uh, your levels of vitamin D. And if not, at least take a vitamin D3 supplement uh, because places like the UK and many parts of the US and all just don't get the sunshine. You also may not be converting very well. And if you're a person of color, uh, then you may find that you don't absorb the vitamin, uh, the sunlight as well and convert uh, the vitamin D. So I would certainly say vitamin D is a issue for people with PCOS and deficiency has been seen in studies. So I would recommend at least in the winter months, uh, taking between 1000 to 2000 international units or getting your levels checked at least once a year. Um, vitamin B12, I would also suggest whether you are on a completely plant-based diet or not, uh, unless you're very, very diligent and you're able to actually ensure that you have all the right amounts of fortified foods two, three times a day, I would say taking a supplement of B12 is actually helpful because even if you're an omnivore, which means that you eat uh, not just plants, a lot of people have are found to have B12 deficiency. Uh, the studies have shown that there is a possibility of some mineral deficiencies and vitamin deficiencies in PCOS. So you want to look at your zinc and selenium intake. Again, you can get these through legumes and nuts and seeds and um, things like inofolic acid uh, or inositol, which is a, a vitamin that is comes in a supplement form as well. Uh, a whole grain plant-based diet will address those things, you know, green leafy vegetables and things like that. But you may want to look in and with um, advice, rather than just taking a blanket multivitamin uh, supplement, I would say look into maybe zinc, maybe selenium. Chromium has been shown to help in people with type 2 diabetes for blood sugar uh, uh, regulation. Uh, but we don't know long-term studies and it can cause a, a copper deficiency, I think. Uh, so my advice to people would be, yes, you may want to take some supplements. Omega-3s are your top. Uh, and I would say, I would definitely recommend algae-derived omega-3 between 600 to 1,000 milligrams, uh, but also adding a couple of tablespoons daily, either into your green smoothie or in, onto your porridge uh, of either um, milled flax seeds, which helps to reduce your breast cancer risk, chia seeds, hemp seeds, you know, a handful of uh, broken walnuts. Uh, these are things that will give you the ALA, which is the alpha linoleic acid. And while Asians, for example, may be better converters, uh, you want the EPA and the DHA. So you really want to go to the source. And that's why people eat fish. And that's why fish has historically been considered to be healthy is because it's a source of omega-3. What people fail to understand is that the fish are actually eating the same algae that we are asking you to eat. So I would say take algae-derived omega-3 if you have been diagnosed with PCOS uh, or if you're at extremes of age, I would certainly recommend that. I would also recommend the, the whole food sources, walnuts, hemp seeds, sunflower seeds, chia seeds, just mix it up. Very it, uh, get a table, couple of tablespoons in. I would say take your vitamin D3, get the sunshine in. Uh, here again, I would say that you want to avoid sunscreen between 15 
to 45 minutes, depending on the uh, color of your skin. And the ideal time to get your vitamin D from sunshine is between 12 and 3 p.m. You don't want to get burnt. So if you have light skin, only about 15 minutes before you slap on the sunscreen, always put sunscreen on your face because that can worsen acne and pigmentation. But what you want to do is expose your arms, your legs, your back, uh, if possible. So between 15 to 45 minutes of sunshine and vitamin D3. Sunshine is great as well for mood elevation. Remember, anxiety and depression is a problem uh, for people with PCOS. The next supplement, so vitamin D3, algae-derived omega-3, I would say a multivitamin, multimineral uh, supplement for people with PCOS on the combined pill, uh, because there are some studies to show that the pill sometimes can disrupt your gut microbiome. So you just want to take a supplement along with that. Does not mean you stay away from the pill if that is the right thing, because it is the, the most effective medication that we have for PCOS. The next supplement that you want to take is sometimes you might consider uh, zinc, selenium or chromium. But again, under individual physician guidance, I would say rather than just uh, supplementing. And lastly, what has really become very popular, it's cheap, it's safe, uh, but we don't have all the studies yet. And that's D-chiroinofolic acid or myoinositol uh, and folic acid. We know that these can help with ovulation and re- improving androgen levels, I think. So people are often on it, but you know, you want to take it if you're trying for a pregnancy. So for about six months, and sometimes you may add something like metformin in those, but these are drugs that are off-label, not licensed. So lifestyle and whole food comes first, and then you may add these supplements. Uh, There are lots of herbal preparations. I would say be very wary because all these have not been studied and there's nothing natural once it goes into a tablet. So always eat the whole food. Have the turmeric root or the turmeric powder, have the ginger in the solid form rather than taking it in the form of a tablet. One thing that is very good uh, for PCOS that has been shown is spearmint tea. Nice little trial uh, because a lot of um, Middle Eastern women who suffer from a lot of acne and increased hair growth, probably more than, uh, say, the Chinese Han women when they have PCOS, they find that when you drink a couple of cups of spearmint tea, it doesn't have any caffeine as well. Uh, So that can help with PCOS. So that's important to understand uh, that you want to really hydrate. Water should be the drink of your choice and some herbal teas. Caffeine is not only present in coffee, it's also present in chocolate and in cacao drinks and in green tea and things like that. And caffeine, um, the Royal College of Obstetrics in the UK have come out very clearly that is zero, no safe limit for coffee or caffeine in pregnancy. Uh, the NHS still says 200 milligrams, uh, but actually even 100 milligram of caffeine for every 100 milligram of caffeine you include in your diet in pregnancy, you have a 27% increased risk of stillbirth. So you want to stay away from caffeine during pregnancy. We have a whole chapter dedicated to fertility and pregnancy in the book. There's so much to discuss, uh, Simon. This you know, could go on for <laughs> three or four hours, but I'm hoping I'm able to get across to your listeners uh, why lifestyle is so important. But you do need to consider some supplements, vitamin D, algae-derived omega-3, and perhaps ionofolic acid, and also looking at zinc and selenium. All right, beautiful. This has been absolutely incredible. And as you say, there is so much information to cover. I feel like we've done a, a really uh, a good job. Is there is there anything important that you feel for this conversation that maybe we've missed or that you wanted to say? 
So I want to highlight here very clearly that there are many inequalities in society and that health is a privilege. Uh, and so it's really important for us to understand that if you think you have PCOS, do not allow yourself to be dismissed. Um, and that might be particularly true if you are uh, have socioeconomic problems uh, or if you are from an ethnic minority. And so you have to understand that sometimes there are plenty of compassionate and empathetic health professionals around. Don't give up. It's really important. We have a, I have a whole chapter where we talk about medical racism. Uh, it pains me to say it, but sadly it is present. Uh, we know that from the numbers of studies uh, showing maternal mortality rate is higher, five times higher in the black uh, population, twice as high in the Asian population. Uh, so if you have PCOS, my plea to you, if you're a health professional, and my plea to you as a listener, and if you are having PCOS, is that please, please do not let yourself be dismissed. Uh, you really have to remember that 75%, up to 75% of people with PCOS are not getting a diagnosis. And that's because sometimes it's very much fragmented care. So it leaves you very frustrated. One minute you're seeing an endocrinologist, next minute you're seeing a gynecologist, then you're seeing a fertility specialist. You may be seeing a dermatologist, you may be seeing a beautician, you may be seeing a nutritionist. And what happens is nobody's joining the dots. So I want you to learn how to join the dots for yourself. I know that's not fair, but that is something that I really, really want you to do. And so that you can empower yourself because without knowledge, how are you, without knowing how you're body works without knowing what the root causes of chronic conditions are. How are you going to help yourself? You are then relying on somebody else who is not invested in you, you know, who is invested in you for that particular moment, but not lifelong. And so, I, as I've said, I think I have a chapter which says nobody knows your body better than you. Nobody loves your body better than you. So that's all I would really want people to take away is that there is help. There is no cure for PCOS, but you can actually live a beautiful life that is not defined by PCOS. And Rohini's story in the book will actually make you cry. I have my story as well, because I went through uh, premature ovarian insufficiency. But, um, you know, I had that condition after I finished my family. But when you read Rohini's story, you realize how people might look completely okay from the outside and they are not okay inside. And so help is available. There are communities. We have resources at the back of the book, support groups at the back of the book. Do not for any minute think you're alone. And if people are giving you information that doesn't sound scientific or if it sounds too good to be true, it is too good to be true. Thank you so much. And and I know that we kind of only just talked about the oral contraceptive pill there towards the end. And, and I know in your book, you talk about it being potentially helpful for someone with excess androgen. I just want to remind people that in our previous episode, episode 155, we went into a lot more detail on the oral contraceptive pill and, and you made a great case for when it can be helpful in, in, in managing certain conditions. So I just wanted to draw that uh, people's attention to that if they want to go back and listen to that. Can I just say one thing about the pill there? There's a lot of hate about the combined contraceptive pill. It is absolutely fine if you don't want to take it. Okay, that's not an issue at all, you know, absolutely fine. But we cannot ignore the science. The science is very clear. It's the one of the most effective forms of contraception. So if you are not in a 
position of privilege where getting pregnant is not the end of the world. You don't come from a culture where getting pregnant would be the end of the world or you are at university or studying or, um, you know, needing to space your uh, pregnancies then natural methods is not something I would recommend. It has a 20% failure rate. Condoms uh, have a, a similar failure rate. So really don't knock the mind pill. It may be something that actually saves your life. Pregnancy can be a dangerous business. The second thing is that it has many non-contraceptive benefits and it is a drug of choice for polycystic ovary syndrome for those who want to regulate their periods. You don't have to have a, a menstrual cycle or a menstrual period every month. You can take the pill back to back safely and have a break if you want six months, every three months, every year absolutely fine. There's no medical reason. In fact, it will help you with your anxiety and depression if you're not having a bleed every month. Teenagers have to be cautious. Uh, you have to have a detailed discussion because a big Danish study did show that if you are on the progesterone-only pill or even on the combined pill, there's increased risk of mood changes. So that needs to be monitored carefully. But uh, the combined pill in PCOS is particularly useful for acne and particularly useful for excess hair growth. And so it improves sex hormone binding globulin and reduces the androgen sensitivity. So it's really very important to ask your GP to pro uh, prescribe you a contraceptive pill if you're going to go on it with one with low androgen potential. So something that is really got the right mix and, you know, your GP can easily look it up and, and you know, there are different preparations. So the combined pill is not something that everybody needs to take. But if you need to take, absolutely. I've got a wonderful case study where I had a personal trainer. Uh, they're all composite studies, so then nobody can be identified. But she was feeling she was letting herself down because she was going to go on the pill. There should be no shame in taking medications. Absolutely no shame. It's the same way that when you wash your hands, you are able to save lives from uh, women dying from infection uh, and um, also the antibiotic. When So differences between Semmelweis and Alexander Fleming penicillin prevents infections, hand washing, protects people from dying from infection. Same thing with a vaccine. Wear a mask and, and protect yourself from COVID. We haven't talked about the increased risk of COVID with PCOS. Simon, there's so much to talk about, but I'm hoping I'm able to get through uh, that. There is no shame with taking fertility treatment, seeking help, um, taking hormone replacement, taking the contraceptive pill, if you need it. If you don't want to take it, not a problem. But one thing is important. Lifestyle always has to be there at the forefront. Anybody who tells you to not eat plants, anybody who tells you that sleep and stress or exercise and um, is not necessary or not that important or that alcohol is okay in moderation, I'm sorry, they haven't read the science. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Neetu. You, you really are a, a wealth of knowledge. I'm so grateful for your time. I'm, I'm grateful that you wrote this book uh, and Rohini too. Uh, we all are. So thank you so much for coming back and joining me again. And once again, to the listeners, Living PCOS Free. It's fabulous. It's full of really good science. And, and lots of affirmations, a 21-day plan uh, so that you can actually implement it, even though it takes 66 days to actually make a habit. But it, it, you can repeat it. It's just a little guide so that you can start by making the changes and reaping the benefits. Because I want all of you, every single one of you who was listening to get the same benefits that Rohini and my patients have got over the years. 
Awesome. Thank you so much. Let's make sure we do this again soon. <laughs> again? Okay. <laughs> I'll be there. There we go, my friends. I hope you found that one interesting. I know I certainly did. Before I let you go, quick teaser on something new that's coming. This show is evolving as we all are. Head to theproof.com for a few details and register your email to join the priority list. That's theproof.com. And with that, I think we can land this airplane. Thank you so much for hanging out with me. I love you guys. And as always, I'm looking forward to repeating things in just a few days time. Until then, remember, more plants, my friends, more plants.